wonderful time of congregational song leading, of uh, congregational singing, I should say, and appreciate the leadership in our music ministry, and thank you for singing uh, from your hearts to the Lord this morning. John chapter 18, John chapter 18, we have worked our way through several chapters as Jesus met with his disciples in the upper room, celebrated his final Passover with them here on this earth before he went to the cross and died for our sins and the sins of the world and rose again. From that Passover meal, from that meal with his disciples there in the upper room, we have our communion service. We observe the Lord's table, and our roots are found in that, that meal that he had with his, that Passover meal that he had with his disciples that night. And then for John 13 all the way through John 17, we really have discourses, sermons, a time where Jesus taught where Jesus encouraged, where Jesus prepared his disciples, and where he prayed for them and prayed for us. And we come to the conclusion of Christ's high priestly prayer. Somewhere that prayer was prayed between the upper room and his entering into the Garden of Gethsemane. And they have now left the upper room. They have come and they have gone to the east of Jerusalem uh, toward Mount Olives to the Garden of Gethsemane. And we've, we come to John chapter 18, in verse number 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the brook Kedron in the Kidron Valley, just east there of Jerusalem, where was a garden into the which he entered and his disciples. John's emphasis throughout his book is that Christ is the Son of God, the Messiah. Yes, John will give an eyewitness, an accurate, infallible account of Christ's betrayal, arrest, and crucifixion. And that account will emphasize this theme, that Christ is the Son of God, the Messiah. While some movies, TV programs, various descriptions will, will focus on the pain and the suffering of Christ, which is good, which is necessary, it's fine to explain those things. But the emphasis that we must keep is the emphasis that John and the other gospel accounts have upon who Christ is, why he died, the salvation he provided. And we'll see that throughout John's accounts. We will see in this first section of John 18 and throughout, really, throughout the betrayal, arrest, crucifixion, and resurrection, we will see the courage of Christ, supreme courage, courage that goes above and beyond anything that we can possibly imagine. We also see a shift from John 13 through 17, which is, a lot of, again, doctrine, teaching, instruction, discourses that Jesus, sermons in a sense, that Jesus would preach, that Jesus would teach to his disciples. We shift now to, again, historic narrative. And so we are going to see this eyewitness account. By the inspiration of God, these words are recorded 
as the very God-breathed words of God, as John wrote with his experiences, with his personality, with his knowledge, with his eyewitness accounts, being there with Christ, we are going to see specific facts and we're going to see specific details over the next few weeks as we continue in this study through the book of John. But again, throughout all of these details, we will see how John uniquely declares that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Messiah, who came to die for the sins of the world. In Matthew 26 and verse 30, we see that Jesus and the disciples, they left the upper room. They went into the Mount of Olives, east there of Jerusalem. They have come out of the city and they've gone in to the Kidron Valley. They've now crossed the brook Kidron, as we just read there in verse 1. They're on uh, the, the side of, of Mount Olives and there are gardens. Our understanding is that there were gardens all along the Mount of Olives. Olive Gardens, of course, for the name uh, Mount of Olives. Uh, possibly even some vineyards. Often very wealthy individuals would own a garden along the side of the Mount of Olives because there wasn't enough room in the city, nor the right kind of maybe soil or especially not enough room there in the city to have a garden. But a wealthy person would then buy a plot of land there along the, the base of the, the Mount of Olives, there along the side of the Mount of Olives, and there they would establish the, these gardens, one of which we know as the Garden of Gethsemane. And because it was likely privately owned, it gives us, from what we understand from the, the history of that day, Jesus likely had a, a privilege from somebody there in Jerusalem who owned that garden. He had privilege to go to that garden. This was a frequent place. He went there often. And Jesus taught his disciples that night. He prayed this high priestly prayer that we spent a few weeks looking at in John 17. He's now crossed the brook or the river Kidron. And according to Matthew 26, 36 and Mark 14, 32, we know and we have identified that this garden mentioned in verse number one is this garden of Gethsemane. He had come to this garden to pray, to pray, to pray with the apostles and to pray to his heavenly father. And we read that during that prayer in Luke 22 and verse 44, he prayed so intensely, so fervently that his sweat was mingled with drops of blood. He would pray to the Father, not my will, but thine be done. We know that Jesus would frequent this garden. It was a place of rest. It was a place of prayer. He would take his disciples there as we read there in verse number 2. And Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place. For Jesus oftentimes resorted thither with his disciples. So here we see the betrayer and his band of men. This group of men. The betrayer. We're going to see four individuals or groups identified in this account of the arrest, the betrayal of Jesus Christ. The first is, of course, Judas, the betrayer, the son of perdition, who had sold himself to the devil, who, according to one gospel account, the devil himself came in 
took possession of Judas. And how we can completely understand and explain that, I, I, I can't fully comprehend. But he had sold himself to the devil. He's known as the son of perdition. And he had gone to the religious leaders and betrayed Christ for 30 pieces of silver. From what I understand, a slave's ransom. That's recorded in Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22. And here we read Judas also, verse 2, which betrayed him, knew the place, for Jesus oftentimes resorted thither with his disciples. Verse 3, Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. We know that he met Christ that night, the night of his betrayal, and he greeted Jesus with a kiss which should have been a sign of affection, but it was rather a kiss, a deceitful kiss of betrayal. We know from Luke, or excuse me, from Matthew 26 and verses 48 and 49 that he even referred to Jesus as master. The mockery, the deceit, the hypocrisy, the, 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 the wickedness and the evil of Judas's heart, to feign affection, to pretend love while betraying, having taken money and betrayed his master, who now he mocks, using that term when his heart was one of evil, of murder. It's a reminder again of how depraved man's heart can be. We're all sinners. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Not everybody goes to the extremes, of course, of a Judas. But that potential is in all of us because of our sin. We don't like to think of ourselves as sinners. We are constantly pounded with how good we are, how positive we have to think of ourselves. Self-love, self-care, it's all in the news. I listened to a tech, bo- tech pro- podcast, if I can say it. I listen to a tech podcast on a regular basis, and one of the commercials for this podcast is this particular host, and she is using a self-care psychologist as one of her sponsors and talking about how this psychologist, this psychiatrist, this self-care guru can revolutionize your life, can reform your life, can help you to find the, the real you. And for no extra cost, you can even change therapists. What a deal. No Bible, no truth, no looking to God, no looking to eternal truths, no looking to Christ, but looking within and trying to find our authentic self. That seems to be the heroic thing to do today. But when we look within, we only find a deceitful heart that is desperately wicked. Judas had gone to the point that now he had sold his own life to the devil. And it is a dangerous thing in Romans chapter 1 when we give our when God gives us over to the reprobate mind. He withdraws his mercy, he withdraws his grace and we are left to ourselves. And that is the worst place we can be. Because then the garbage, the sewer, will pump forth 
from the wickedness of our hearts. I wouldn't dare leave any of my children when they were toddlers, when they were infants. I dare leave them now. No, just kidding. But I wouldn't dare leave my children, I don't know what age, I don't know, 12, 13. I think we maybe finally left them uh, for some hours by themselves. But I wouldn't dare leave a baby, a toddler, an infant by themselves for several hours or go on vacation and say, hey, take care of yourself for a week. We're going to go hang out at the beach or whatever. And what would, what would happen to our, our children if we just left them for a week as toddlers, as infants? They would die. They wouldn't survive. We would get thrown in jail. We'd get thrown in prison for abuse, for neglect. When we are left to ourselves in our depravity, in our sinful condition, we will destroy ourselves. And as our culture continues to focus on self and the authentic self and discovering my truth and living my truth and you do you, then all we do is we continue hurtling our way down the slippery slope at a rapid pace of descent. And without being disrespectful, the end of that is hell. We hurdle on a slippery slope, descending into the pits of hell. Having gained the whole world and having lost our own soul, as we have practiced some form of self-care and self-love and living our own truth and you doing you. I'm thankful for structure in my life. I'm thankful for people, Christian parents. Thankful for godly institutions, a local church that preached faithfully the gospel. Because it checked my flesh. It checked my spirit when I wanted to do my own thing and go my own way. And as our institutions fail, as people leave churches, as they get away from the structure of family, they turn to themselves and we destroy ourselves. Judas thought that he was the hero. He had finally taken into his hands the Messiah, Christ, who they, the religious leaders wanted to murder. And he saw himself as the hero. I've got him now. And he was hurtling headlong into an eternity of hell where he spends forever with the blood of Christ on his hands and the guilt of betraying Christ. And you know, if we're not careful, we may never do what a Judas did, but if we're not careful, we can be a Judas in our hypocrisy, having heard the word, having heard the gospel, having received the truth, but having spurned all of the counsel from our church, from our parents, from the very word of God that we maybe have sat in a classroom or in a, in a congregation, in a church, where we know the truth, we know the gospel, but then we trample upon the blood of Christ, as Hebrews 6 talks about. It's a warning for all of us. We see not just, not just Judas, but we see this band of men. We're not talking about a music band. We're talking about a group. We're talking about a group of people, a group of men. We notice here in verse number 3, that Judas had received a band of men and officers from the chief priests. 
and Pharisees. So who's this band of men? Likely it's a, it's a Roman cohort. A cohort was a detachment of Roman troops, sometimes could reach the, the level of 1,000, which would then be led by a centurion who would have a hundred and then eventually to a thousand. So this Roman cohort could be a thousand soldiers, but it was known to also have as few as 200. So if that number is correct, there could have been 200 Roman soldiers that night coming for Christ who had healed the sick, who had raised the dead, who had made the lame to walk again and made the blind to see. 200 Roman soldiers. Here they are. They're coming. They've received orders. They no doubt had some responsibility, some duty there in Jerusalem for the protection, for the keeping of the peace. And now they have received orders from the chief priests, from the Pharisees, the religious leaders. And this band of men probably also included some temple officers, uh, which, again, I'm not 100% sure, but they could have been Jews, or they were also Roman soldiers, but very possibly Jews. Temple officers, Romans, Roman soldiers, with orders from the chief priests, the Pharisees, ultimately the Sanhedrin. And notice they came also with lanterns and torches, obviously, at night, and being without flashlights and the modern conveniences that we have of LED lights and all the different lights that we have, and we can pull out our phone and we can turn on our flashlight. We can just tell Google. Uh, I better be careful what I say because Surrey might turn on a flashlight or Google might turn on a flashlight on our phone if I, if I, if I say it uh, too loudly or, or uh, whatever. We can just turn on our flashlight with, with, uh, with voice activation. Uh, they needed torches. They needed lanterns to see, and then notice they brought weapons. Had Jesus led an insurrection? Had Jesus come to Jerusalem at the Passover with an armed group of men to take on the Roman rule and to start a mutiny and try to throw off the Roman oppression? Is that, is that how Jesus came? No, he came humbly. He washed the disciples' feet. He taught in the temple, in the synagogues. But they came with weapons. We see the chief priests identified. These are the Sanhedrin. These are probably the Sadducees. So we have Judas. We have this group of men, this band of men. Probably some Roman soldiers, some temple officers. The chief priests were the Sadducees. They were fewer in number in the Sanhedrin, but they had a lot of power, a lot of wealth. They were the elite class. They did not typically get along with the Pharisees, but they were united in their opposition to Christ. And then there's the fourth group, the Pharisees. This was a strict religious sect that was also complicit in sending representatives to arrest Christ. Four groups, Judas, or individuals, Judas, a band of men, a group of men sent by the chief priests and the Pharisees to arrest Christ. And they came with weapons. And what did they, what was the reception that they received? We see the betrayal, the betrayer and his band of men, this group, 
What was the reception that they received? We come to verse number four. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? Notice that Jesus goes forth. We read there. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, knowing what was going to happen, he went forth. Supreme courage. Courage in the face of the most diabolical evil. And he went forth. Most of us are, sadly, afraid to speak up when we should for truth. To hand out a tract to... Share the gospel. Sometimes we're afraid of our own two-year-old throwing a temper tantrum in the store. And we're too scared. <laughs> we're too scared to deal with it like we should. No, no application I'm trying to make there <laughs> to anybody. <laughs> but I've been there. I've said this story, the story before. I remember Emily throwing a huge fit at the Target near our house. And Kelly and I looked at each other and she said, with her look, I'm not going to deal with her. You deal with her. Right? Right? Because I'm the father. I'm the man of the house. It should be my responsibility. I shouldn't say, no, you take care of her. Now, there are times where we have to share the duties. I get it. But it was just the two of us and Emily, and I decided, I'm the father. I'm going to have to deal with this. And if I deal with it now, it'll hopefully be better later. And I took her out to the van. We went to the back seat. And we took care of business, if you know what I mean. And I don't think Emily ever threw another fit in a store again. We took care of it. I had to step up. I had to go forth and do the right thing. And it was not easy. It was not pleasant. I'm looking out the van window, hoping nobody's going to turn me into CPS. But I loved her enough to deal with her for her temper tantrum. Going forth... And courage for the Lord can take all kinds of different forms. It can be at work. It can be saying no to certain things. It can be saying no to certain kinds of entertainment, certain places, certain kinds of beverages or activities. It takes courage to live for the Lord. And we stand out more than we ever did, it seems like. Just the fact that we don't cuss every other sentence or three times in one sentence makes a huge impression on people because we actually have clean mouths. Because there are lots of so-called Christians who they have potty mouths just like the world does. So we really stand out when we have clean tongues. Jesus went forth. He went forth with courage. And notice in verse number 4, Jesus therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom seek ye? He asks a question, as he often would do in his ministry. He would ask a question to elicit a response, to solicit a response, to form an opinion or to get the person to admit, to speak up, to say, to, uh, to, to verify their, their thinking or their, their position or what it, what it was that they wanted to do. Whom seek ye? Verse 5, they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto them, I am he. Notice that the, the word he probably is in italics. Added there by the King James translators for clarification. Literally, Jesus said, I am. 
And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. And as soon then, as he had said unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. Now, I don't know about you, but if someone had made that statement and I immediately just fell over, backward, knocked off my feet, I'm telling whoever the leader is, I'm going home. I'm not going to mess around. They got back up on their feet, apparently, and they continued with their diabolical deeds. But the power of the word of Christ to simply state, I am, I am he. Again, I am speaking of Christ as Yahweh, Jehovah, declaring himself as deity, as God, as the God man. And upon that truth, they fell over backwards. They were powerless They could not take him with their own power and their own strength. Christ had to let them. As he had said, he would lay down his life. He had power to lay down his life and to take it up again. Incredible. The courage, the power. The power and the majesty of Christ revealed. They couldn't stand up. They had no power over him. But Christ allowed them to arrest him. Again, he had power to lay down his life and power to take it up again. But notice we continue down in verse 7. Then asked he them again, whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. So he asked them again. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. If therefore ye seek me, let these go their way. Jesus was keeping a promise to the disciples. He was fulfilling a promise to them that he would protect them, that he would keep them secure. Yes, they would scatter Though only John and Peter, from what we understand in the scriptures, only John and Peter stayed close. The disciples scattered, but nevertheless, Christ protected them. He kept them from dying that night. He kept them from being taken away in being crucified. And of course, there's a spiritual application. He kept them spiritually. He secured them. He was keeping them secure in him as saved individuals, speaking again to our security in Christ, our eternal security in Christ. But he was keeping his promise that he had made in John 17 and verse 12. He protected them physically. He protected them emotionally. He was protecting them spiritually. He knew their faith was weak. He knew that they were struggling and they would struggle as they would not understand as he was crucified and they had not As we have already talked about, they had not fully understood and grasped his words regarding his death, burial, and resurrection. So he was protecting them, even in their weakness of their faith. And how many times does God do that with us in our lives? Where our faith is weak, where we're struggling to understand. And God continues to minister his grace. Christ continues to minister to us. And with the help of the Holy Spirit and drawing us close to him and as our paraclete, as our intercessor, as our comforter, as the one who comes alongside. And he ministers to us in our time of doubt, in our time of discouragement, in our time of depression, in our time of question. In a time when we're very, very, very vulnerable and God protects us, he ministers to us, he keeps his promise. He will never leave us nor forsake us. We can claim the promise of Romans 8, that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. He gives grace. 
when we are faced with trials and temptations that are above what we think that we are able to bear, He gives us the grace, 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13, for those trials and those temptations. That no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape that ye may be able to bear it. So we also see in this response, we see Peter, as we come down, verse 9, that the saying might be fulfilled which he spake of them which thou gavest me, have I lost none. There is that word of prophecy, that word of promise that is being fulfilled there. But verse 10, then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and smote the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Isn't again this just like Peter? He's the root and tootin' cowboy, right? He's there. He's already said he was going to go with Christ even if it meant his death. And Christ had to rebuke him for his pride, for his arrogance, and remind him and prophesy of his own uh, betrayal of Christ and denying him three times, not the betrayal in the sense of Judas, but denying Christ three times before the rooster crowed twice. But here's Peter. He pulls out his sword. And I know what all the Second Amendment people are thinking. Okay, I'm not going there. But he pulls out his sword. And he thinks that in his religious zeal, that he's doing the right thing. And what is he doing as he cuts off that servant's ear? He's actually interfering with the will of God. He's getting in the way of what God is doing. And sometimes, again, I can't help but make the application because I have so been there. And still find myself in that. Having a lot of zeal. A lot of passion. But not always according to knowledge. And I get carried away. I'm thankful again for people in my life who have to remind me, have to check me. And I need that piece of humble pie. Sometimes that piece of humble pie is half the pie. It's a big piece. But Peter had to be put in his place again. Sometimes we, do, we get ahead of God. We get out of His way and we, we try to take things into our own hands. And Peter had forgotten that Christ had taught them to love their enemies, to do good to them that hate them. He had forgotten what Christ had taught about His own crucifixion. And again, Peter had a lot of zeal, but it just wasn't according to knowledge. He was getting ahead of God. He was doing things His own way. He misunderstood Christ's teachings about the cross he thought he was acting in defense of God and God's will, but it was actually doing the opposite. And it reminds us of how careful we have to be. That we have to make sure that we are not taking our desires and consuming them upon our own lusts. How often do we proudly claim to be doing God's will when we are really doing the opposite? And we rationalize and we spiritualize and we make excuses. So our deceitful hearts have to be searched on a regular, consistent basis to make sure our motives and our actions are pure and are right, that they are desires that have come from God and not from ourselves. What did Christ do? In his mercy, he healed the servant's ear. He picked the ear up, put it back. Immediately it was healed. Now, again, if you're in that group of men... And you've already fallen down backwards, 
And now you see instant healing of the servant's ear. Again, in my mind, I'm thinking, I'm getting out of here. I am not going to continue with this. I am not going to mess with a man who has that much power. But again, the, the, the evil, the, 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 the diabolical determination, again, it just shows how stubborn the sinful hearts of man can be. And here's Judas, here's this band of men, here's the orders from the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they continue with the mission to arrest Christ. And that brings us to the beginning of the trials of Jesus that night. Jesus rebuked Peter in verse 11, then said Jesus unto Peter, put up thy sword into the sheath, the cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? Again, we see Christ's determination to fulfill the father's will, to take the cup of suffering and to drink it on our behalf, to make atonement for our sins, to be our substitutionary atonement, to pay the penalty for our sins. So that as we repent of our sins, change our mind toward our sins, and look to Christ in saving faith and His finished work on the cross, we can be saved. We can be eternally saved, forgiven. And then we see the beginning of the trials. This is, in a sense, a kangaroo court, right? We're going to look at these trials, and we're going to spend some time a little bit today introducing, and then we'll work our way through these verses and these chapters. But Christ, in verse number 12 the band and the captain and officers of the Jews took Jesus and bound him. As if he were some common criminal, they bound him. He had never lifted up a sword in opposition to the established authorities. He had no much, he had never even so much as said one word about starting any kind of political insurrection or uprising. Yet they came with weapons and they bound him. And it was his love for us, ultimately, that bound him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to whosoever believed in him should not perish but have everlasting life. His love for sinners and their redemption is ultimately what bound Christ. He willingly went with them for our sake, for you and for me. He was arrested and bound. And then verse 13, he's taken, he's led away to Annas first. For he was father-in-law to Caiaphas, which was the high priest that same year. This is religious corruption. These are wicked men, full of corruption, full of hypocrisy, full of immorality. In some cases, just Roman political pawns. It just makes you so angry sometimes to see the corruption in our politics. And the, and, and, and the using of Bible verses and references to God in their perversions, in their policies that are completely in opposition to God and His Word and to His law and to His standards. And here are Annas and Caiaphas. Caiaphas is the high priest. He should be following to the letter of the Mosaic Law the high priestly duties that have been the pictures and the symbols of the Messiah, the Lamb of God, who would take away the sins of the world, as John the Baptist said. And he was right there in front of him. But he refused to see him as the Messiah. He refused to recognize him as the Christ. 
in Annas, here is the start of these trials of Christ. Father-in-law to Caiaphas, the high priest, who had made the unknowing prophecy that one man, it was expedient for one man to die for the sins of the people. And Caiaphas had made that unknowing, unwitting prophecy. Anna had been the high priest for several years. He was father-in-law to Caiaphas. Anna had, Annas, excuse me, had five of his own sons in addition to Caiaphas, who was his son-in-law. He was an evil man. He was not the official high priest at this time, but he was pulling the strings, if you know what I mean. And sometimes there's somebody out there who's the face that everybody recognizes, everybody knows, but they're not really doing much of anything. They're just the puppet on the string. And Annas is really the corrupt one, though Caiaphas was as corrupt as his, as his father-in-law. But here, Annas is the, the one, in a sense, pulling the strings. He's a corrupt religious politician, evil man. And they took him, they took Jesus, that is, to Annas first. Because they knew who Annas really was, and who had the real authority, who had the clout, who had the power. Who, when he spoke, things happened, you know what I'm saying. So they brought Jesus before Annas. This would have been similar to an arraignment, like in our justice system. Down in verse 19, we read that Annas asked Christ about his disciples and his doctrine. And remember again, it was Caiaphas that had made that unknowing prophecy back in John 11 and verse 50. But as we close, I want us to understand two trials. And beneath each of those trials, there's at least two other sub-trials in a sense. So we have in the first part of Jesus' trials, we have a Jewish trial. The first part of that is before Annas, recorded here in John 18, 12 through 14, then also down in verses 19 through 23. And then before Caiaphas, John 18 and verse 24, Matthew 26, verses 57 through 68, he appears before Caiaphas in the Sanhedrin. Now John skips the part of the trial before Caiaphas, for his own reasons that God had inspired and God had ordained to not have John record that particular part of the trial. We know about those from the other gospel accounts. He does give us some detail, though, about this preliminary arraignment before Annas, this preliminary hearing before Annas. So we have the Jewish trial before Annas, before Caiaphas, and then we have another part of Jesus' trials, his trial, and that's the Roman trial, a Jewish part and a Roman part. Jews and Gentiles both guilty before God. It's our sin that ultimately put Christ on the cross. So I know sometimes there's this debate about the Jews, and there have been some good theologians who we benefit from who have been very, very, I don't know what the word would be, they have persecuted, they have been very antagonistic toward the Jews because of their role in crucifying Christ, forgetting that it was even the Gentiles who were involved, and it's our sin ultimately that put Christ on the cross. So there was a Jewish involvement, Annas and Caiaphas, and then there's the Roman involvement. Before Pilate, John 18, verses 28 through 38, and Matthew 27, verses 11 through 14. And then before Herod Antipas, this is the Herod of Galilee, where Jesus had grown up. Nazareth was in the northern part in Galilee. Herod Antipas 
was the Herod in the northern region of Galilee. Herod the Great had been the Herod in the southern part when Jesus was born and had slaughtered the, the male children two years and, and younger. This is Herod Antipas. That's Luke 23, verses 6 through 12. Then there was a third Roman trial, and that was before Pilate again. John 18, verses 30, 33 through 19 and verse 16. And then in Matthew 27, verses 15 through 31. So we will be back and forth as we look at the details of these trials. Obviously, the gravest injustice ever. So when there's talk of all this injustice and there's this victim mentality in our world today, I just want us to be reminded the greatest injustice was committed against our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ for us. So this victim mentality, it really bothers me. Because yes, I understand, life is not fair. My dad and mom told me that growing up. Sometimes that was the only thing they had to say. Sorry, life is not fair. Trust God. Believe God's word. Go forward with the next step of obedience. Trust the Lord. But here's a, a trial of, of, of great injustice, or sub-trials of great injustice. The greatest injustice ever committed perpetrated by man against God and against his son, Jesus Christ. And it was all part of God's redemption plan in the providence and the sovereignty of God. And that is so hard in our little pea brains to reconcile how man in his sin is fulfilling the will of God. It's hard for us to comprehend, but we accept that tension because because of sin and in Adam all die. All of us in Adam die. We all are sinners. We can't think, oh, if I had been in the garden, I wouldn't have done what Adam and Eve had done. No, we would have done it too. They were the very best representatives of mankind, and they blew it. And we would have done the same, probably sooner. In Adam all die, but in Christ shall all be made alive. We embrace that tension. And we love it. Because it's the truth of God's word. And it helps us and it encourages us and it keeps us strong in the hard times, the difficult times, when the sufferings and the circumstances seem to go against us. We know that God is in control and we trust him and we obey him and we remain faithful to him and to his word. And we allow God to work out the details and deal with the things that we can't deal with. We remain obedient. We remain faithful. And Jesus remained committed to the Father's will with supreme courage and determination. And we must have that same courage, that same determination in this world today. For victory over sin, by God's grace, and by his power to overcome whatever that sin, whatever that addiction, whatever that trial, whatever that is, we must depend upon his grace. We must have the courage, depending on his power, to overcome by him and for his glory. We must have a zeal for the Lord, like Peter, but according to knowledge according to the will of God. And may we, as we close this morning, may we have a renewed gratitude and humble appreciation for our Savior and for our salvation. May the Lord do His work in our hearts. That we might walk out of here once again renewed in our zeal and our determination to obey the Lord, to do His will, and to live for Him. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you will help us to apply these words, these truths to our hearts, to our minds, to our lives. 
Lord, if there's someone here who does not know you as their Savior, may today be their day of salvation, Lord. If there's a believer here who is struggling, Lord, may they get those matters right. Lord, I pray that you will do your work in our midst as we close. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Derek is going to come and he's going to lead us in our closing hymn. That is hymn number 481, Just As I Am. We'll go ahead and we'll sing the first and the last stanzas. So two stanzas, first and last stanzas. 481, Just As I Am. If we'll stand to our feet and we'll find our hymnals and we'll be singing two stanzas of Just As I Am, the first and the last. If God has spoken to your heart, you can do business with the Lord as we sing. Or if we can help you afterward, we can counsel you from the word of God. We'd be happy to do so immediately after the service. May this be our invitation, our benediction, our our hymn of dedication once again.